Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. We are live on WNUR 89.3 FM in HD, Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined tonight by Oliver Camacho and our new co-host, Ashley Hardgrave. All right, tonight... We are back after three weeks. Oliver goes inside the huddle with the star of the Metropolitan Opera's production of Philip Glass's Akhenaten. That would be none other than countertenor Anthony Roth Costanzo. But first, American soprano Catherine Lewick shamed the critics that shamed her last week. Mic drop. Plus, we recap the fallout from the allegations of sexual assault against famed tenor Placido Domingo. Ashley shares one of the operas on her must-see list for the coming season in the two-minute drill. You get all your headlines from Opera Land as well and our hot takes on them. Of course, you can call us on air. Get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your hot take on the latest opera news stories on what we're talking about tonight. 847-866-9687. You can also tweet us at Opera Box or you can even post on this thing called Facebook as well. Oliver Camacho, great to see you again back here in Studio One. It looks like we finally got our proportions right. We got rid of three white guys and replaced them with one white woman. <laughs> Ashley Hardgrave, how fabulous to have you as part of the OBS family. You've made a dreadful mistake. I know. I'm going to regret this, I'm sure. But I, in the meantime, I am delighted to be here. <laughs> the Bears season has finally begun, and they've begun it in mediocrity, losing the uh, season opening game last Thursday night to the hated Packers, 10 to 3. Three points on the board in 60 minutes. Serena Williams was defeated by a Canadian teenage upstart who plays like her when she was younger. It must be so both encouraging, but also like, gosh darn it, like you, <laughs> that you help bring up the next generation of tennis players who want to be like you and actually are good at doing that. And then uh, Rafael Nadal succeeded uh, in the fifth set against a young Russian player, uh, Daniil Medvedev, who looked like he was going to be out in three sets, but managed to uh, a turnaround and almost took um, Rafael to the end of the fifth set. But um, he broke when it was time, and it was exciting, and the audience got to watch almost five hours of tennis. <laughs> it's yesterday. crazy. Yeah, if you were one of those twenty thousand at Flushing Meadows, that would have been. Pretty damn sweet. You definitely got your money's worth. However, guys, we have skipped over one of the biggest sports travesties this week. Oh, yes. And that is the placard for Aaron Rodgers during the Bears-Packers game with that mustache. As I said on Facebook, <laughs> uh, 
I need someone to remind Aaron Rodgers that he does not have time to both play football and tie ladies to train tracks in 1920s <laughs> films. Uh, so he needs to make a choice. Can somebody explain to me this? It's Antonio Brown. He like left the Raiders and joined the Patriots. No, you don't need to waste okay. your brain. Cells. Yeah, yeah. And there's there's a third team that was involved before okay. it. I'll tell you on a commercial break. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, that was the thing about that mustache. Was like uh, Ron Jeremy called. He he wants his look back. Every time it came on screen, I just heard like an old saloon piano. <laughs> but he's gay, right, Aaron Rodgers? Uh, good question. That would be a, that would be a no. Yeah, man. No. I mean, he did date Olivia Munn for a long time yeah. and some other lovely ladies before. I know. I feel like and me if he calls. See, I'm I just going to be. I honest. recognize his name, so I feel like I would know if you. I mean, because I know who he is, he's probably gay. Let's Ooh. talk some opera. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. That's what you're listening to tonight. Back after a bit of a hiatus, Labor Day weekend, the dog days of August. I mean, we did that epic three-hour show. So, podcasters, you had that show in your earballs. Well, we did the show on August 12th, and then that night the news broke, Uh, or like the next morning. Killing me. The the Plaza Domingo news. So, you know, you guys heard three podcasts and nothing last Monday. Um, and we're expecting us to comment about Domingo, and we had nothing for you. <laughs> Sorry. How do we uh, recap this? Where do we go from here, Ashley? How can we how how can we bring this story and get everybody up to speed as if they weren't already? What's what's the latest thing that we need to know? Oh, would you say? Let's see. I mean, I feel like it. Uh, well, well, the the news broke that a that a singer who. Uh, now no longer needs his approval or currency for her career, uh, was able to boldly come forward and say she was the only one of the, I think, eight or nine women that were part of a report. Uh, She's the only one that was named by name and said, here are the things that he did. These are the ways in which my career was kind of in his hands, and I felt like it was something that I had to do to comply with these advances. There are a lot of other women that are in the report that are not named, uh, but this is, uh, as I've I've put in in a couple of different places, this is... um, this is kind of the most non-secret secret in the game. Uh, it's basically, you know, I got rumblings of this when I was a graduate student 17 years ago. I got rumblings of this when I was trying to lay down musical roots in Los Angeles 12 years ago. All of it, never spoken above a whisper. All of it, you know, if you care about your career, you may know about this, but you speak nothing, you say nothing about it. Uh, so I think the only difference now is, uh, you know, that people are starting to talk about it a little more publicly and it's showing up in publications and newspapers and investigations. It's been around for quite some time. The differences we're talking about it publicly. And there are singers who are like standing by him and we won't name them because I don't want to embarrass them, but like they came forward to say, Oh, Domingo's such a great guy. And like, you know, I stand by him and they're going to get mud on their faces. I mean, like why, who asked you to say anything? Like, well, I mean, I think there's, for them, that is the truth. Domingo is a great guy to them. Domingo has not probably gone through and made these advances to them in the yeah, way that these other singers counter tenors and tenors and baritones who, who want opera. Yeah, you know. I mean, there is this divide of of people who have you know backed him and given him those standing ovations in mm-hmm. Salzburg. Ashley, would you agree that the divide between the haters and the supporters? could be drawn over one line, or rather one body of water. The Atlantic Ocean? The Atlantic Ocean. Yes. (laughs) How would you categorize that? Yeah, you know, it's you're seeing, you know, house after house here in the States uh, sort of 
either distancing themselves or fully severing ties with him on a number of different agreements based on these allegations, based on these reports. Uh, and then all you got to do is cross the pond and you see, you know, places in Austria, you see audiences in other areas across Europe that are are not only not taking these reports and allegations seriously. They're they're really kind of poo-pooing them and considering them silly and trivial and, and they are in some ways elevating and lauding him even higher and further in terms of the art form. Well, I think Europeans always have thought of as Americans as puritanical, even though like puritanism comes from Europe, but you know but they they think of us as, you know, not sexually liberated and you know we ha it's true i mean like we have these problems when it comes to sex and talking about sex uh and accepting you know people's identifications of their gender and sexual expression etc so i think you cer certain european countries feel more advanced than us and you know they have like their response to you know me too over there where they feel like well you know like it's it's like this but it this is how men are and they just accept you know sexuality as part of life and maybe they've just been ac accepted it much longer and just d have dealt with it better because they know that's just human nature exactly just ask those hungarians i mean they hit everybody not just gay people oh my god <laughs> well i mean there's a for me there's a difference there's a difference between the culture of bravado the culture of you know sort of a a traditional masculine behavior and there's a difference between that and morality and consent. Mm -hmm. uh, those are really two different things. We tend to be drawing mm -hmm. the line a little harder over here on this side of the pond these days, but there, there's still room for traditional masculinity and traditional masculine sexual energy in our culture, but that can still include consent, can still include respect for anybody anywhere on the gender spectrum. And I think that what's frustrating for me is that as you know, we, we spoke about this a little bit before the show, is that you know, Americans right now, there's a, a stereotype for a lot of Americans on the global stage that we are, you know, we are, we are either puritanical or we are unintelligent or we are doing things that are directly against our own interests. And the one time, the one time we're getting it right in terms of <laughs> progress, in terms of demanding respect and you know, for, for each side or all sides rather of the gender spectrum, we're, I'm, I fear that we won't be heard on this global stage because of these previous. Hey, we also innovated the iPhone. We did. And yeah. how ridiculous <laughs> is it that here we are as Americans doing the one thing right, yeah. which is tackling sexual abuse and sexual assault in all different areas of culture, including entertainment. And yet, mm -hmm. the opera people are getting it wrong on this one. And so now, others are saying, well, obviously they blew it in opera because like everybody in opera land is in the still in the 19th century They're like so it's behind the times it's so yeah textbook. i mean mm -hmm. it's so well, when blackface is prophecy. still something we're talking about you know and aye, aye, aye. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely it's opera box score wnur 89.3 fm anyway. george cedarquist with oliver camacho and ashley hardgrave besides the organizations that have just you can go actually ashley found this uh ap news thread <laughs> i don't know if we could post that on our website it is on the website operaboxscore.com the ap has an entire thread just about stories about placido yeah it's a good way to aggregate all of the who's <laughs> with him who's not what companies are canceling their performances what's ha i don't know what's happening to operalia or what's happening to la opera i mean those are two organizations that are you know on the international level that are very closely tied to Domingo and the Young Artist Program in Washington and the Young yeah. Artist Program in Los Angeles. I mean, his name is everywhere. Yeah, it's on the side of a plane for like <laughs> Iberian <laughs> Airlines. But I think. but news did break very recently uh, that Agma has uh, put out a call to action 
uh, looking for witnesses to testify. Um, Ashley, do you have a little more information about that for I us? sure do. Um, as a member of AGMA, I was given an email from our union on September the 6th, which was Friday. Uh, and If you're not an AGMA, close your ears right now. So. Yes, if you're not an AGMA. Uh, <laughs> basically, they are... I won't read it word for word just so we can protect everybody here. But the gist uh, is that they are opening an independent investigation into these allegations against Domingo. Um, they've actually they've retained counsel. They're going to be doing their own investigation. Basically, it was getting to a point where house after house after house in the United States was having some sort of storyline allegation pop up about this. And the houses were kind of trying to handle it. I keep saying this word, but in-house, they were all trying to kind of handle it on their own. And it became so widespread and so pervasive that AGMA was like, listen, we need to handle this for everybody in our community. So they they have uh, retained their own counsel. Uh, and this is one thing that is a quote from the president of AGMA, Raymond Menard. Uh, the health and safety of AGMA artists is of paramount importance to the union. Every AGMA artist has an absolute right to go to work without fear of sexual harassment, discrimination, or assault. As a labor union, it's our job to make sure that our employers keep our members safe at work, uh, which was a really great thing to get uh, as as an AGMA member because, again, you know, there are, there's the side of this that is our an art form. There is a side of this that is just the creation of beauty. Uh, and then there's the side where people are just trying to do their jobs and they're trying to continue to get jobs and get better at these jobs. And if there is some sort of you know, being that is compromising the ability to get work and the ability to do good work. I mean, that's the thing for me that's really kind of at the crux of this is people can't go to work and do their jobs. I'm also a member of the union, mm -hmm. full disclosure. And look, I mean, I think the union has had some low points. I think it's had some disorganization in it. And yet, here we are under a new president now. He's been a president, I believe, for maybe just a year, 18 months. Yeah, still kind of new. boy, is he putting his stamp on that organization by circling the wagons and saying, look, this this will not pass in this union. Agreed, agreed. And I also think it's of note and importance to mention that he, uh, the council that they have have retained so that they can, you know, do this independent investigation, uh, this guy is with a really big firm in, in New York, and he is a former federal prosecutor, and he specializes in white-collar defense and investigations. He's coincidentally uh, the attorney that Actors' Equity hired to investigate workplace harassment claims uh, that were on the set of Chicago last year after the death of an understudy following a dispute with the director, uh, which still doesn't have a full conclusion, but it's it's interesting to see sort of the list of cases that uh, this federal former federal prosecutor has worked on, and so many of them are, you know, sort of workplace harassment. Obviously, and we're going to keep uh, this story. Yeah, it's a never-ending story. And just anecdotally, um, Fathom, which is the company that broadcasts uh, classical events, ballet and concerts and whatnot to movie theaters, they went ahead with their uh, broadcast of a Domingo Gala um, from Arena de Verona in Italy. And the average intake uh, for that type of event for Fathom is about $170,000, maybe $150,000. This one only grossed $80,000, which is about uh, $283 per screen. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> oh, People putting their money where their mouth yeah. is... Where they, they want their mouth not to be. Yeah. Yikes. American soprano Catherine Lewick shamed the critics that shamed her last week. This is a link also on our website, operaboxscore.com, from the BBC. So she was performing in... Barry Kosky's uh, Orfei in Salzburg? Correct. Yeah. Yeah, she was uh, Eurydice. And these critics, especially Manuel Brugge, who wrote in the German newspaper Die Welt, The World, uh, described Lewick and her fellow cast members as, quote, fat women in tight corsets spreading their legs. Hopefully 
I'm not sure if anything was lost in translation on that or not. I guess I could read it. By the way, this is the Offenbach Orphe aux Enfers, Orpheus in the Underworld, not the Gluck. Exactly. Yeah. So, like, as a critic, what is this guy thinking that he that he can say this? And the responses from Lewick, man, I mean, she just she just absolutely put him in his place, right? Saying, quote, it was a galvanizing thing that she did just to call him out. Yeah. And like it was one of the most widely circulated, uh, you know, responses to a review uh, where she went after the reviewer that I've ever seen. And like everybody came to support her. And it was such a great moment <laughs> if you were paying attention. Ashley, you were saying the editor of Develt doubled down on the position of that reviewer. He absolutely did. And I think, Oliver, you've got the, yeah, you've so, got the response from... Um, this is from uh, the editorial response from Develt. I thank you, dear Ms. Lewick, I thank you for your letter, and I'm sorry to hear that you feel irritated by Emmanuel Brugge's report on the Salzburg Orfe. Yet I think there's a basic misunderstanding. This report was not meant as a personal insult, and it, it was not written as a personal insult. What Emmanuel Brugge did attack, though, was Barry Kosky's stage direction and his view on women expressed in this stage direction. This is marked clearly in the first part of the sentence quoted by you, which leider läuft der gutgehörte Marionettenmechanismus schnell leer immer wieder machen dicke Frauen in engen Korsetten in diversen separates die Beine breit. Good job. Bless you. Mr. Brooks' opinion is not aiming at a certain singer and without naming anyone specifically, what Manuel Brooks is aiming at is a theatrical stereotype, a burlesque Marionettenmechanismus which is a certain type of female stage character to achieve an atmosphere of cheap laughter, like English pantomime or Italian commedia dell'arte. If the polemic sentence is judging anything, then it is the aesthetic world of Barry Kosky, who plays to with a certain female cliche. This aesthetic might be called misogynist, not Mr. Brooks' clear words about it. To describe and criticize aesthetical stereotypes, even in drastic words, is the job of the journalist. So here is this editorial board just throwing some compound German words to confuse us all. <laughs> well, I see this as a couple of things. Uh, this is mansplaining, German-splaining, and whataboutism <laughs> at its finest. I have I lots like German to say There must this. be a German compound word for that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, there's got to be. If Germans, let us know. Yeah, um, uh, Brian von Ruden, please help us with that one. <laughs> I, I'm sure that he has. Uh, you know, I mean, it's... Um, for me, the thing that's so frustrating about this, there's there's a... There's a couple of things. Um, yes, we're, we're talking about women's bodies. We are talking about the size of women's bodies. But one of the things that we have not, not actually brought up in this conversation is this is also about women in postpartum. This woman had a baby 10 months ago. 10 months ago. She's singing this incredible role. For the record, she also went back to the Met to sing Queen of the Night six weeks after giving birth. So That's she is a superhero. Crazy. Let's go ahead and, and talk about that. You know, she uh, she's actually said, you know, her breastfeeding body, the additional weight that she's carrying because she's made the choice to breastfeed her child for as long as she has, it's, it's put her in the best singing of her career because of the additional strength and, and creation, literally, that she is bringing forth. Um, oh, I just don't know where to go with all of this. But I think... <laughs> You know, in the same sentence, in the same series of writing, he praises the voice and then he immediately cuts it down with some crack about the corsets. She was one of the people wearing corsets on this stage. This is a highly sexualized show. The direction of this, yes, I mean, his, has got, you know, some really, you know, forward and overt sexual themes to it. But, you know, she's kind of the one driving the bus on all this. She quite literally has some sort of a sexual encounter for the direction with most of the people that are on the stage. So 
it doesn't matter whether he called her out for this or not. We all know where this is going, regardless of what language you're reading this in, German, English, whatever. And ultimately, oh, I have so many thoughts and feelings about this. But for me, two things. Uh, I've already talked about postpartum. So three things. First thing, postpartum. Second, it doesn't matter who is or isn't thin. Uh, what matters is who can sing this score and tell the story. And she does so. And they talk about both of those things in this article. She was praised for it. Um, you know, and frankly, for this writer, whose name I'm going to just conveniently forget because I don't want to give him any more <laughs> notoriety because he doesn't deserve it. Um, his, his job is to be a journalist and to write about opera. It's an art form that he is supposed to know a whole lot about, including the storylines. And if he has this much trouble following the story and not being able to understand the story because he's got, quote, thin women in dresses and, quote, stocky women in corsets, then perhaps he needs to go back and read librettos and do a little bit more research a few times before he decides to go in and write and get paid for it. And in this review, is there any mention about the body types of men? Not one. Not one that I know of. I want to make sure I'm, I'm clear on that. But yeah, I mean, this is, again, from the last time that I was on the show a couple of weeks ago, you know, there's, there's just this new, pardon the word, chorus of women who are coming forward and saying, you know, this is, my size and shape doesn't tell the story. My voice and my connection and my text study and my acting are the things that tell the story. And she tells the story very well. She continues to get hired on as many continents as there are opera to sing these shows. So it doesn't matter to me, and I don't think it matters to a lot of people except this German writer at this moment, you know, what size she is. And if, if she feels like she's in the best singing shape of her life, I say more power to her. Have at it. Absolutely. Hey, let's hope this is like the end of a nasty little chapter in this critic's career. Cause, uh, you know, this is such BS. I, even the the um, the German like trying to parse this German. It, uh, it's just so typical of like you know critics just going back, not admitting any sort of like complicitness, not making any sort of uh, accommodation or any sort of admission of, of guilt at all. It's just. I just wonder if it's also like you said, German splaining. Like if there is like the saying, oh. The Americans are so easily offended, and here they are coming to talk about, you know, these women's issues, and there's no place for it. This is opera. <laughs> you know? Or even just the basic, oh, well, what he actually said was, insert 17 German words yeah. here. You misunderstood it. So that's yeah. actually a dig at her German and her interpretation of German. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, hey, coming up next, the one, the only... Oliver Camacho talks to some guy <laughs> called Anthony Roth Costanzo. No, seriously, Anthony Ross Costanzo is inside the huddle. Freaking ARC, that's next, only on America's Talk radio show about opera. It's on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Support for Opera Box Score is provided by... Opera Philadelphia's Festival 019, featuring 12 days of zesty comedy. Zesty. Now, there's a word you don't hear that much. Mm. Zesty. How does zesty relate to opera? Are there, like, zesty opera characters? Who's a zesty opera character? You know, uh, I, I think some of the Inas, you know, the Zerlina, uh, the Desmina, if you do it right. I think she's Zerbinetta. zesty. I think Zerlina and Zerbinetta are the zestiest of the opera characters. And they also happen to have Zs. This I works know. out. Oh I my think God, that's, that's so maybe nice. that's why zesty is... Okay, so. Just like zesty. Yeah. Zesty comedy, rare classics, and new music at venues across the city. 
city. It's like the Olympics. Like remember when uh, Brazil hosted the Olympics? Can you imagine I having to like do. go? I didn't go, but performances yeah. include the world premiere of Denise and Katya by Philip Venables and Ted Huffman, an exploration of the dark side of social media based on a true story about teens who live streamed their tragic deaths. I wonder if they but, ate Tide Pods. I mean, you know, there's, well, vaping, you know, that's the thing that's getting the kids these days is the vaping. What We've be is careful. the most disappointing death in opera? Ooh, ooh, Cleopatra, who wants to get bitten by a snake? Not me. For me, it's um, Queen of the Night, Manasatos and the Three Ladies. Like, you get all of this fun music with them and a rage aria and et cetera, and then, like, they're just gone in, like, ten seconds of the finale. Well, like, anticlimactic, actually, I know, if you think about I feel it. bad for them. I want to uh, see what their afterlife is queen. like. So there's also Prokofiev's rarely seen comedy, The Love for Three Oranges. Handel's Zemele and Joseph Keckler's Let Me Die, which asks why opera has such a morbid obsession with death. There's that death again. So. Speaking of death, <laughs> yes. my goodness. All right, you two. Festival 019, September 18th through the 29th in Philadelphia. Tickets at operafilla.org. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight on Opera Box Score. George Cedarquist here with Oliver Camacho and our new co-host Ashley Hardgrave kicking off Season 5 of the OBS. So this past weekend, Collaborative Arts Institute of Chicago held their annual Collaborative Works Festival. It's a mouthful. A multi-event celebration of art song. Previous festival artists have included Luca Pizzaroni, Douglas Williams, Eileen Perez, Susanna Phillips, this year, CAIC featured their artistic director, Nicholas Pan, with soprano Lawrence Neufer and the countertenor Anthony Roth Costanzo in works by living composers. I was able to make it to two out of these three events and begged Anthony Roth Costanzo to sit down with me for a few minutes. I caught him between yesterday's sound check and the performance. I think I may sound more anxious than normal in this interview because I knew I was using up part of his lunch break. Uh, before the interview starts, we'll hear an excerpt from the album Glass Handle. Uh, this is... In the Ark of Your Mallet from Philip Glass's Monsters of Grace. Don't go. to be able to speaking to you. Anthony Roth Costanza, welcome. Thank you. So um, we talked a little bit about um, some of the interesting things that you do, but just for our audience who might not have been following all the things that you've done, can you talk about maybe a couple of the interesting non-opera projects where you've had to sing, but were clearly not opera. They were more like art installations. Yeah, I just did this big project called Glass Handle where in conjunction with the release of my first album, ARC, on Decca Gold, um, I realized that I had to create a whole context around it because albums in today's world don't work the same way. You know, it's not people buying physical CDs it's Spotify. And so how do you have an impact? How do you reach people? How do you uh, create buzz around something? So I also wanted to reach new audiences with this music. So I decided to engage with filmmakers, dancers, choreographer, an artist, and a fashion designer to create this kind of art installation come concert um, where uh, 
the audience was actually moved around hmm. and I was stationary and they were moved to these different stations where different artists interpreted the classical music through their own medium. So, um, and you do that at O Festival, right? We did it okay. first at the Philadelphia O Festival and then in New York at St. John the Divine, uh, co-produced with National Sawdust. And there was lots of fabric involved in it, right? <laughs> uh, well, Raph Simmons, the fashion designer, definitely uh, made 500 pieces for be the, between the orchestra and the extras and the um, singers and dancers and everything. So it was a it was a big undertaking, really big undertaking. Wow. And I mean, I you talk about collaborators and, you know, filmmakers and fashion designers. Most opera singers, I will say, um, are focused so much on their own music making and the learning of music and whatever their career that I, I find that it's hard to see collaborations outside of what we expect to be in like the classic music world. So do you have these relationships already? Uh, well, I, oh, I certainly, I had some of them. I grew up doing film and Broadway and dance and all kinds of different things. But I do feel that the future of opera has to be really collaborative. And it's wonderful that the tradition is alive, that people are really cultivating their knowledge of the craft. I, I think that's very important and it shouldn't go away. That said, if that's all we do, opera becomes very insular. It appears, it appeals only to a certain group of people, and it's a diminishing group of people um, who know a lot about it. Whereas when we collaborate with artists in other fields, we get different perspective ourselves on what the art is, on what opera is, and we're not so within the context of opera that we, we lose track of the fact that not everyone relates to it the way we do. But also, we find um, new ways to express the music, to express ourselves, and I think um, that interdisciplinary collaboration is where opera began. It began as a form where we put music and drama together along with fashion in the form of costume design and uh, and sets as you know painters and and different sculptors and, and things made sets so you know it's where what opera has always been and it should continue to be that but the uh, the extremes of the different collaborators need to develop along with the world around us well I'll say that my audience knows that I'm very traditional and I love when tradition is done so well I feel like nobody can resist it but one of the things that comes with tradition, especially with early music, is uh, the idea of artifice. And I feel like I spend so much energy trying to educate um, people about what the artifice was back then. And what you seem to be doing is creating a new artifice that has just as really easier to relate to for modern audiences, but you're using music especially like Handel, which is filled with artifice. And you have like these long arias that are one emotion. And how do you really explore one emotion for like nine minutes of a da capo aria. Mm -hmm. And you're finding a way, which is, I, I have to say, is just so clever. So Thanks. Well, I think the the um, artifice of the Baroque is the inspiration, really, for everything we do. And the way that they treated it is the same way that we treat it now. It's just that the expression of it in a visual form is different. Um, and I think that's the point of access for people who've never heard this music before and who have no way to relate to it. And we have to constantly be thinking about how we, how we reach those people. And then in doing that, it changes the quality of the music. You know, music is about communication. It's about the expression of a human uh, a human being, human voice in the case of opera. And so we have to constantly be thinking about that connection. Um, and I'm less interested in connecting to the people who already know about it and more interested in finding the people who don't. So that's your outreach. 
Yes. Which I love. And I have to say, like, do you, have you been able to track people who like, now you see, oh, they're coming to the opera now? I mean, like, that's the dream, right? Like, to do something like this that's extra opera so that people come to the opera house. Definitely. I mean, what was wonderful about the engagement with Glass Handle, this project I created, and the nine music videos we made, which not only were, were projected live in the show, but then released on YouTube and all social media, and Apple released them as a streaming visual album. So people connected to these videos because of Tilda Swinton, because of James Ivory or Mark Romanek or any of these artists, and also the, the striking visuals. And then they start following what you're doing, not so much because they know or like the music, but because they like the, the overall video. And when those people then write me on Instagram or Twitter or whatever it is to say that they bought their ticket to see Akhenaten at yeah. the Met, I do feel one by one it's a grassroots kind of thing um, and and that's the the wonderful way you can use social media um, to to reach out and I think we have to use the tools that are alive and well in our I've world. always felt that the way that we're going to build audiences is just by doing something that's spectacular to look at and that cannot people cannot help but want to watch it yeah and then drop in some music that they've never heard before and sometimes just the unamplified human voice, and especially in a context that feels like whatever, theater or circus, it's magic. It's yes. like if you can sing, that is like a whole other skill that people are just not used to people having, you know? Absolutely. And then ask, what was that? And then if you could put in like Handel, you know? Yeah. Or Philip Glass, you know? And it gives them curiosity. No, it's so great. Um, another thing that I, I wanted to talk to you about is how good you seem to be with media. Okay. And with gay, I mean, we're talking about Instagram, we're talking about your social media presence, but I don't know, a, more than any other singer, maybe in the past couple of years, I feel like the opportunities you've been given to um, control your own narrative about your career have been remarkable. Um, okay. Do you have any strategy about that? Or have you just been lucky? Uh, no, I definitely have a strategy in that I want to be authentically who I am. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not trying to create an image which is different than who I am. But I have real, um, I would say, convictions, values, ideals, things like that. Mm -hmm. And um, so I try and incorporate them carefully into everything I do, whether it's an interview, a podcast, or a post on social media, and create it's one... Your brand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> one kind of unified aesthetic and, and sense of who I am, um, but that has lots of different colors and shades and, and things that people can relate to. Um, but yeah, I, again, I feel even when I'm doing a concert, for example, um, like I just did in New York at the Resonant Bodies Festival, where... Um, I'm singing six pieces of new music. I like to talk between them as a way to sort of engage people in these pieces of music so they can let go and just listen as opposed to presenting them with something that they feel they must figure out during the performance. Art which is hard. Is <laughs> exactly. So I like, to, I, I like to interact in that way, and my, the media is one great way to do that. Yeah. Well... Talking about your authentic self, I mean, I don't mean to be presumptuous, but you definitely give sort of like a queer vibe in your art making, which I'm crazy about. Do you feel like we're in a moment right now where it would not have been possible for you to be the artist that you are um, maybe even 20 years ago? You know, I think it's a unique time in that I, I go, I teach people from middle school through college, through grad school um, at, in master classes, or I go work with kids. 
And there is a much more open and fluid attitude toward things like gender and sexuality and all of that. That's really become a mainstay of our culture now. So I do feel we're in a unique moment. At the same time, um, you know, being a countertenor, you realize that um, if you feel natural about it, if you feel comfortable, if you feel it's an honest expression of your voice, other people are comfortable. If it's somehow contrived or there's some uh, anxiety buried in there about masculinity or something like that, I think other people pick up on that and it becomes a, a more of a freak show. Um, and so I approach my own queerness in the same way. I'm just sort of honest and open about it. Um, I don't make a big thing about it, but I also, it's a part of my life. I, it's, I have lots of friends in that community. We create cool art together. We have good times together. So I like to show that and um, I don't, uh, I hope it doesn't alienate people, but rather makes them uh, feel a sense of joy. I love that response. Uh, I am a little bit older than you. And um, I wonder, maybe because it's my own self-hatred or something like that, how you feel about these audiences who, let's be honest, the ones who really support like the Metropolitan Opera or Lyric Opera Chicago, they're very conservative. They are conservative, and I don't. I have lots of friends who are conservative, and and you know, I've know tons of patrons like that. But that said, if you have a certain joy within you and you're a charismatic person and you have something significant to say as an artist, I don't think that they uh, look down upon you for any queerness or, or there are very, very few conservative people who go to the opera that I've encountered who have any shred of homophobia within them or, or you know, queer phobia, I guess, would be the term now. So... Um, I think it's all about a kind of authentic self-presentation. Um, and I've been lucky in that um, maybe it's just that I don't care enough to read the subtleties of it. And I am very direct with people. And I forge relationships with people, regardless of whatever reservations may be lurking under the surface. <laughs> so the first time I heard you sing was um, that role in Enchanted Island, where you come out like on the boat and you're like this prince character. I forget the name of that character. Uh, Ferdinand. Ferdinand, yeah. Uh, that was, like, what, 10-plus years ago? Yeah, almost 10 years ago, yeah. And now you're coming back to the Met uh, as the principal artist for Akhenaten. Um, does that, is that a significant, you know, circle for you? Oh, or? it's huge. It's crazy. I mean, I'm thrilled, you know, that in my 30s I get to do a title role at the Met. And um, it's also, you know... Uh, it's unique because as a countertenor, obviously, you can't sing Tosca and La Boheme and, you know, be every season at the Met. So there's only going to be so many title roles, and you want it to be the production and the role that you feel you're really connected to. And this production, this opera, this role, more than really anything I've done, represents a, a, a very personal sort of... Um, spiritual connection to me that makes me feel like it's absolutely the right thing to step on that stage and do. Um, Akhenaten himself as a historical figure could be seen as a queer icon. He could be seen as a cult leader. He He's very mysterious. And 
people's imagining of him from, you know, Freud and Thomas Mann through to Philip Glass and to the Nazis and, you know, the British who discovered him, all these people who have idolized him in one way or another is almost as fascinating as what he did himself, which was to be a true progressive and the first individual revolutionizing ancient Egypt and saying that there was only one God. And in some ways probably having some of the first thoughts which led to Western religion as we know it. So he's a fascinating character to portray, one who was loved, one who was hated, one who had strong ideas, and those ideas were then reversed the moment he was killed. And um, I think about Obama and Trump and Brexit and all of the things happening in our world, and this feels unbelievably relevant. At the same time, we have this visually spectacular production that puts a lens over the whole thing and lets you see it through this kind of dreamscape of what antiquity was and us unlocking these caskets of ancient spirits and, and setting them loose on the Met stage. So it's a really, um, it's a really spectacular and unique uh, production. And not least of all, the music of Glass is truly mesmerizing. You know, um, I know people have diff varying opinions on it, um, but the consensus, as we've done this in London and L.A. three different times, um, is that... Uh, people come and say, you know, I, I was unsure about glass, but then I saw this, and it's undeniable. And like you were saying, when you create a piece of art that is just inevitable, people go and they love it, um, then it's hard to, you know, it's hard to turn that down. I'm sure there will be haters, and I'm sure some people won't like it, but this in particular has a certain way of drawing you in. Yeah, I mean, the production, I haven't seen it yet, but I've seen images, like, it's just so s striking that you know, people are going to go, and they might hate the music, but they're going to be entertained. You know? Definitely. And that's what we want, right? We want people to feel something, or we want people to be excited about going to the opera. You know? Absolutely. And, and people obviously are going to go that will never go to any, see anything else, because they want to see you, and they want to see this production, and maybe they want to see you naked. <laughs> maybe. Is that happening at that the Met? That is happening at the Met, yeah. So. Is that going to be the first time there's been frontal male nudity at the Met? I think so. Okay. I think so. And it's with the countertenor. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Why not? So, I mean, it's very stylized. It's very very um, beautiful, yeah. and I wouldn't do it if You're it didn't make glitter. sense. No, well, not quite, but I'm pretty naked. But um, but it's uh, it's also quite shocking in its way. But it moves so slowly that it can't really be anything but uh, breathless. You know, I I feel the whole audience holding their breath for about six minutes. Mm. So. Mm. Well, um, I don't want to take it too much of your time because I know that you have to, you're about to perform in like an hour and you have to like have your lunch and whatnot. But um, I just want to say like one of the things that was so fantastic that made me so joyful was, I forget which one it was, but you did the Met HD uh, interview. Yes. Remember what, what show was uh, that? I did uh, Louisa Miller and also Marnie, Nico okay. Millie's Marnie. It's Marnie that I saw it. And that is a tough job. Yes. Like there seems to be so many moving parts like, the singers don't always know where to stand, where to go, who to hand the mic off to, what, you know, do I walk away from the camera, do you know, like, so, you were so, you were flawless in it, and you oh, also, thanks. like, cracked some jokes, and it was, like, very, like, joyful. Yeah. Um, is that, have you had experience from the camera before? Uh, I did a Merchant Ivory film in my teens, and that gave me some experience. And then, you know, I've uh, I've wound up doing various things in front of camera. But that that is a very unique and particular skill, reading a teleprompter, being able to hold in your head any sequence where, you know, you're going to talk to someone, they're going to walk to the left, you're going to turn to that camera, you're going to say the next thing, yeah. you know, with 30 people around filming and being 
you know, broadcast live to hundreds of thousands of people in 70 countries. It's a lot of pressure. So you have to kind of take it in stride and learn how to let go and also be very, very prepared, as with everything in yeah, life. Yeah, you improvise a lot. It's yes. Really like, yeah, yeah, there are some people who are so great at it, like Joyce Donato is, like, great at that. Yeah. And there are some people who are so bad at it that it's actually its own type of entertaining. <laughs> That's true. That's true, like everything. Very true. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time, and I'm going to try to get to New York to see Akhenaten, and I'm going to hear you sing in, like, a minute. So so uh, it's been really great to meet you. Wonderful. Thanks for all the work you do. Thanks for having me. From Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Support for Opera Box Score has been provided by Boston Early Music Festival. Single tickets are on sale now for their 2019-2020 concert season, which features solo, which features Karina Govan in concert with Pacific Baroque Orchestra, Amanda Forsyth, and Phil... Wait a second. I thought Boston Early Music Festival was a biennial event. Toby, Boston Early Music Festival is a biennial festival. The next one is in 2021, but they actually go under the moniker, their organization name is Boston Early Music Festival, hmm. and they produce concerts and sometimes chamber operas every year. So, Philip Jaruski with the Boston Early Music Festival Chamber Ensemble. Wait! So, it's a, it's a chamber ensemble. Well, not, not only a chamber ensemble, right? So, I will admit, it's kind of confusing. So, they're an organization, but they have, like, a pickup orchestra. Okay, okay. And they call themselves the Boston Early Music Festival Orchestra or Chamber Ensemble or whatnot. So, it's a lot. Oh. It's a lots of lots of names going I on in their brand. I think I get it. But you, yeah, so. you can also find out concerts like the Venice the Ven, the Venice the Venice Baroque <laughs> Orchestra with Anne Hallenberg. Venice? The Venice, that's my favorite city. <laughs> Venice in Italy? Awesome. So, yeah. I think Jordi Saval is coming this year. That he is. Uh, and what else is happening? Uh, a group called Nevermind. Nevermind? Nevermind has um, that really sexy harpsichordist, Jean Rondeau. <laughs> what? You can be sexy in a harpsichordist? What? You never heard of Jean Rondeau? Is that a sexy name? No, I've never heard of a okay. sexy harpsichordist. Uh, no, it's a thing. It's a thing. Like, I mean... I think all harpsichordists are sexy, Oliver. Oh, and I think so you not... should retract your statement to reflect that. And Steely Antico is coming as well. Oh, that's the, cool. Uh, not really related to opera, but... You know, we like people who sing, and they have high cheekbones. You know how much I like the high cheekbones. Oh, we all know how much you like high cheekbones. (laughs) High cheekbones all the way up to the forehead. Mm. For those of you Mm. listening and not looking at us, we all have high cheekbones. Oh, absolutely. We're all chiseled and jacked. So that's the Boston Early Music Festival 2019-2020 season. How do you get your tickets, Matt? You can find your tickets at a URL, (laughs) which is somewhere. Well, this is a good I think just go to bostonearlymusicfestival.com. Org or .com. Let's check it out. I'm going to just type right now into my little, go to the World Wide Web, so you press www, and then... They just call us <laughs> one take. Boston. <laughs> Early. Okay, one so take. It's all it, you uh, need. It turns out okay. that it is B-E-M-F dot org. Oh, wow. Okay. But I bet you get redirected if you type in Boston Early Music Festival. It will become... Are you eating Papa Ganoush in the middle of an ad? You guys, they give you money? 
Um, they did give us money once. I feel um, like we have to re-record this whole thing. No, I think we're great. So go to bemf.org to learn more. I'll Here, tell you me some of that Baba Ganoush. This just in the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know from the past week in opera land. English National Opera has decided to stop offering established reviewers a second free ticket to opening nights as it tries to bring in more varied critical voices. Composer Kamala Sankaram with librettist Rob Handel are exploring via a techno-noir score the way capitalism, the erosion of online privacy, and the quest for individualization collide in our post-Y2K society. South African soprano Vuvu Mpofu taught herself to sing by mimicking the singers on two opera DVDs, and several years later her talent was spotted by a voice coach. Now, at 28 years old, the soprano is to appear in Glein- at Gleinborn as Gilda in Verdi's Rigoletto. Legendary mezzo-soprano Dolora Zacic has officially announced her retirement from the stage. She will sing her final performances in the spring of 2020 at the Met in Janacek's Kata Kabanova. Over to the disabled list, Austrian baritone Marcus Verba is set to replace Mariusz Kvitschin in Donizetti's Don Pasquale at the Royal Opera House. Russian soprano Ekaterina Siorina took over the role of Violetta in Verdi's La Traviata at the Vienna State Opera last Saturday. She replaced Irina Lungu for the second time in the run, and this time she overtook the opening night performance 20 minutes before the curtain went up. Exit stage right, American Barry tenor Richard Conrad, who died peacefully at home in Maine at the end of August after a long illness. And on this day, September 9th, Hassi's opera Partenope premiered in Vienna in 1767. In 1833, Donizetti's opera seria Torquato Tasso premiered in Rome, and it was the first U.S. performance of Mascagni's Cavalleria Rusticana in Philadelphia in 1891. That's your two-minute drill. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave, and Oliver the Man Camacho. That's what you're listening to tonight on Opera Box Score. It's on WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist here along with Oliver Camacho and our brand new family member, Ashley Hardgrave. Aww. Ashley, you're surviving so far. I'm so, dancing. You can't see it at I'm home, so glad, listeners, I'm so but I'm finger dancing right now. <laughs> I'm so glad you didn't call her lovely. <laughs> well, why can't that, I call her that, lovely? No, that's from the last, that was from the season finale. I, I understand, like, yeah, I understand yeah. that. But it's like you were so hot about that. I could see I the was, smoke in your ears. You, yeah, man, you, you pushed my <laughs> buttons, Camacho. Anyway, um, we heard on the <laughs> outro of the interview um, that was... Um, how all living things, living things breathe, from Philip Glass's *The Fall of the House of Usher*, and both sound clips we heard in that interview were from Anthony Roth Costanzo's *Glass Handle* album. And if you haven't seen the videos for *Glass Handle*, you must investigate them. They're very easy to find on YouTube. Just put his name in the search engine, and you'll see all of them, and they're awesome. Um, so, Ashley, what got your uh, your juices cooking there from these stories? You know, it's definitely English National Opera and doing the uh, we're not giving critics the additional ticket because we want to expand our audience. We want to give additional voices. Uh, I am 
I get why some critics would be frustrated by this. You know, some of the the delights of being an opera critic are the perks that come along with it in the way of free stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we are we are constantly an art form that is trying to find ways to make ourselves more open, more inclusive, more relevant. And what better way to do that than to have a cultivated, guided group of new young folks who are bloggers and writers who are going to be giving guttural, visceral reactions, not because of what they learned in conservatory, but because they came in with very little to no music education and then sat down in an opera. And as the, you know, as the chief executive told the observer, the question is, did it make you cry? Did it make you happy? Ashley, we're going to go to the phone lines here. One of our callers, Anthony from the Bronx, calling in to sound off, presumably about the English (laughs) National Opera critics debacle. Hey, George, this is Anthony from the Bronx. (laughs) I've talked to you before. (laughs) Yes, how are you feeling, man? What's your take on this story about English National Opera only giving one free ticket to its critics? Well, I mean, the way I said, would they bring in their wives and their boyfriends? Who was the other person they were going to bring with them? It was, plus, it was, it's a plus it was one. A, it was it's a plus one. Your, it's, it's none of your, none your business, business Anthony, man. Yeah. They could bring who well, they that want. Might, that, might, that might be a nice night out. You know, you get some dinner, you know, you, you have a drink or two, then you go to see something. And then the guy goes home and he tears the show apart in the newspaper. And <laughs> talks about how fat the women not. are. That's the American way. So, so who do you take when you go to the opera? Uh, normally I take my mama nooch. I don't get too many free tickets, but uh, when I do, I take her with me. She's been with, I, I learned about opera from her back in the day. Everyone's many, many, a critic, many, many, many right, Anthony? Everyone's a critic. That's right, yeah. Hey, I wanted to ask, first of all, congratulations on your new season. Well, I appreciate that very Thank much. You. Season five, here we are. Hopefully you'll win the pennant this year. And another thing. <laughs> hey, did you guys hear about Domingo? <laughs> oh, Anthony, are you just joining us? Did you listen to the first part of this broadcast? I think you went on, I was asleep. Oh. I think you went on vacation just when it happened. That's the problem. We sure did. We way, sure did. Where did you guys go on vacation? <laughs> we all took oh, separate vacations. Was, you were so. just saying, so, okay, okay, I, I get it. You know, I'm taking up too much. As I said before, you, it's expensive to rent that place. I'll let you go, but thank you very much for everything. <laughs> Thanks for the call. Friend and me. Don't worry about it. Thanks oh, for the call. Thanks, Bye-bye. Anthony. Bye, Anthony. Always a pleasure. <laughs> Going back to the English National Opera story, I, I'm with the critics on this one. I, they make a very good point, as did our caller, that actually it is a social activity. They take someone to see the show, and that person can sound as a sounding board for that critic's thoughts. That's critic's ideas. I'm not saying that their plus one should like influence the review of a new production, but look, it's a lonely profession. I get that, and, and I disagree with English National Opera's take on this. I mean, I think it all has to do with the inventory uh, of the Opera House, and like, if they are just allotting 80 seats and they really have no other seats and they want to do this initiative, more power to them. I think Ashley's right in that we do need to get, you know, young voices and whatnot. I actually benefit from both systems because I noticed some organizations here in Chicago starting to, you know, extend their comps to different types of media. And uh, Dare mo- I say live radio hosts. Yeah, mostly I get my comps <laughs> because of Opera Box Score, but as you know, I have other platforms, and uh, those, plat- that, those platforms are also starting to have sway when it comes to the media comps. So, uh, yeah, I benefit from, from it either way. Um, I often like to go by myself just because, like, I go to so many things. I don't want to be dragging people to everything. I'm I, surprised at you. You're such a social, I am, socially but, gregarious But I feel like man. when you're at the performance, like, you need to focus. You need to concentrate. I need to, I'm always, like, looking around and seeing how people are reacting, if they're falling asleep, what 
you know, what works or what performances like are particularly engaging to the audience. And I need to be able to look around and do that. And plus I am a social butterfly and it, it's a really annoying if you go on a date with me to like the opera and like, I know everybody in the audience and it makes the other person feel very like, uh, I don't know. You and I, we've been, we've been on some dude dates together and I haven't felt rejected by you. Like when we go to the uh, Met and broadcast and so forth. That would, that's a movie theater. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> a dude date's a dude date, Camacho. I the other thing that I find kind of strange about this is that so this program at ENO has been mm, subcontracted, if you will, to a website called Theater Full Stop, uh, which posts uh, their websites within forty eight hours. But in going to that website, I mean, the last review they have on there is like over a month old. So maybe just like there's nothing happening in August or. Maybe they're not doing their jobs. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm just sort of confused about that. I mean, I feel like it follows, you know, kind of, kind of our seasons. I think they're kind of at the at the end of what would be their summer season, and they're going to start picking up their traditional season later. I will say, yes, as much as I understand and get your point about it is a lonely profession. You know, you need to. It is a part of your life, and to bring the people in your life to the work that you do. Yes, hundred percent, totally. However. We are constantly trying to find ways to get new types of people to buy tickets to productions. We are constantly trying to find people that don't necessarily speak the language in the same way that we do to come in. So the more people that we have that are speaking more language of the populace, giving context, giving a review, as it were, you know, I think that's something that we're going to be able to try to expand our audience more if we bring in those people as much as I, you know, I watch things with, with a very critical eye, but I also, I speak the language. I have two degrees in the language. So the way that I'm reading a New York times review or a Chicago Tribune review is going to be very different than someone who may be curious about, but not know anything about and not understand and fear opera. I I hear you. We just have to talk about something really quickly. Kvichen gate continues. He's canceled everything for, I don't know how many months now, if you know, how Marius Kvichin is doing personally, let us know. <laughs> and uh, congratulations to Ekaterina Sirina, who is the wife of Charles Kashanovo, who was singing German in this production of Traviata and happened to be in the audience and on 20 minutes notice got up there and uh, apparently did a great job. The audience has loved her. But we just wanted to uh, carve out a little bit of time here at the end of the show uh, to let Ashley uh, give her fall pick for something that's coming up uh, in the new season. Yes, and I was asked for one pick, but I have three. I hope <laughs> okay. that's okay. Well, you do it Man, in four minutes. You're making your impact. First show out, you're already yeah. taken. You uh, just take, take, take. That's right. The A student within me. I had to do it. Um, yeah, so so I was asked to come up with kind of a must-see show for this season. Uh, so the first thing right out of the gate is going to be Dead Men Walking right here in our own backyards at the Chicago Lyric Opera. We have a female conductor we have Jake Heggie, we have Terrence McNally, we have Reset, we have Graham, we have McKinney and Hilly in their lyric debuts. Take my money. Here's my wallet. Charge it. Buy tickets for people outside. I want everybody to be a part of this. Um, not only do I love the music of Jake Heggie and the writing of Terrence McNally, um, I just love that all of this stuff is is coming together in a piece that's, you know, officially modern because it's less than 25 years old, but it's surprisingly traditional. You know, Ricky Ian Gordon is known for his gorgeously tonal music. I'm a full sucker for that. Um, and then there's a little you mean figures. Jake Heggie. You mean Jake Heggie. Sorry, I don't yes. know why I'm saying Ricky and Gordon. Yeah. Guys, we I haven't had enough meant. coffee. Um, <laughs> at any rate, Jake Heggie, he's he's great. We love him too. Um, but the nice thing about it is there's there's little notes, you know, for it being a modern opera, but there's also little throwbacks to grand opera traditions. Um, you know, the thing is, 
it's also really interesting to do this work at this time. You know, we're mm. coming into mm. an election season. Uh, and one of the things that we're going to be talking about kind of on a, a tertiary, like a C-level uh, talking point are going to be things like criminal justice reform. And within that is is capital punishment. And capital punishment is kind of, you know, at the center of the storyline of Dead Man Walking. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how that unfolds this fall. Also, um, you know, Sister Helen Prejean, who wrote the book that all of this is based on just wrote a new book and I am hoping to get my hands on a copy of that before I go and see Dead Men Walking so officially my top recommendation is going to be Dead Men Walking here at Chicago Lyric Opera but also a couple of also ran shout outs uh, Charlie Parker's Yardbird is going to be at Seattle Angela Brown who did uh, who did the role here in Chicago uh, three years ago is going to be reprising it over in Seattle uh, it's just such a cool interesting piece it's a real ensemble piece anybody that wants to take a road trip to Seattle with me in March let's go it's very demanding technically for the singers that show and we had Larry Brownlee as Yardbird or as Charlie Parker and the full cast they all were like stellar stellar singer so that was one of like the unsung gems of the lyric unlimited season from i guess like three years ago uh but yeah it was brilliant so i, I would definitely recommend pe people to go hear that and finally one more just because she's been on our minds for a lot of this hour uh Catherine Lewick is going to be coming back and doing a Queen of the Night at Washington National Opera. And because she is an American treasure she can sing this sort of stuff in her sleep and because she's been through a lot let's give her a hero's welcome when she gets home did you have a clip that you wanted to play from any of these? I did. I did. Um, again, back to Dead Men Walking. Um, this is just such a, a beautiful, interesting piece. And I really love uh, the music of Jake Heggie. I love the text of Terrence McNally. He also wrote Masterclass, which I have a long, long association and love affair <laughs> yes, with. Um, but yeah, so each of the arias from this are, are absolutely delightful. But I think the one that we have up is, uh, is called This Journey. This journey, this journey to Christ, this journey to my God, this journey to myself, to my Jesus, through this man. This journey, this journey to the truth. All right, and that was Catherine Martin and the Minnesota Opera production of Dead Man Walking. All right, we got to wrap this show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight, everybody, on the beginning of season five of Opera Box Score right here on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD. Ashley, you had a bad call this week, I, specifically about Dolora Zachik. Yes, the bad call is all of us, and we don't get to have her brilliance in our lives after 2020. Hmm. Um, for me, a good call. 
Opera Wire published its list of 10 must-see operas for the fall season in the U.S. They lined up with two of our own recommendations, Louisa Miller at Lyric Opera and Alibaba at Opera Southwest. Sadly, Tobias's recommendation for M. Butterfly did not make their list. <laughs> and a shout-out to our own home team, Thompson Street Opera, led by a friend of the show, Claire DeVizio. They returned to the black box of Chicago's historic Anthony M. Theater this week with the U.S. premiere of a show called I Will Fly Like a Bird. Thanks also to Lillian in Seattle for donating to our show. She sent in a check. You too can donate pretty simple operaboxscore.com slash donate. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. The general managers at WNUR are Henry Moskal and Sumble Sangvi. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from operabase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And please leave that review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera between Rush and past plays now that football season is finally here. We're back on Monday, September 16 at 9 p.m. Central when Oliver goes inside the huddle with German baritone Samuel Hasselhorn. Join us. This is WNUR 89.3 FM in HD Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. Chicago's sound experiment. <laughs>